Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 69 and we're hunting the origins of Shaka. Throughout the area north of the Tugela River, the main medium of exchange in terms of goods was no longer cattle by 1810, it was also beads. These glass beads manufactured in Europe had flowed through southern Africa starting in the first days of contact between Europe and Africa way back in the 1480s. More than 300 years later, the beads could be found in every corner of the continent, and one of these corners was Zululand. By the time of Shaka's rise, starting in the second decade of the 19th century, beads had become one of the main mediums of exchange, particularly when a man acquired a wife, Lobolo, in conjunction with cattle. But beads were not the only trade item. Things like copper and iron were mined locally and traded as well, while the people along the coast were expert at salvaging these metals from the numerous shipwrecks that dotted the Indian Ocean sands from north of Mozambique all the way to the Cape. Metals were directly linked to status. As you've heard in one of the earliest podcasts, African people were using iron and copper as ornaments and the metals were worn by warriors as a sign of bravery. So trade with Europeans was therefore directly associated with the stratification of society from the earliest days with the most important members owning the most copper and brass, the most gold and iron. However, there was not enough trade with Delagoa Bay to say with certainty that trade in these kinds of products alone drove the Amandwanwe and Amamtetwa, then the Amazulu, to rise as powerful centralized kingdoms. By the late 1600s, ivory was traveling along routes from central southern Africa to the ports controlled by the Portuguese. Major trading emanated from Delagoa Bay, and the Dutch then took advantage of this. Ivory was the main product, not slaves, with beads exchanged in return. Gold dust was also traded from far in the interior. Tsonga traders from around Delagoa Bay pitched up as far south as the Imfolozi River. Some made it 1,500 kilometers into the interior, and at times those traveling from the Atlantic or the western seaboard would actually make contact with others traveling from the east, the Indian Ocean. Delagoa Bay was a wild place full of pirates and privateers, crooked colonial officials, and craven Tsonga chiefs. Hundreds and hundreds of years of maritime visits from the Middle East and Asia and East Africa and Europe had taken its toll on the surrounding people. The bay was and remains an obvious base for trading into southern Africa. If you deploy an early 19th century logic and realize that people can walk 30 kilometers a day with ease unless the bush is wickedly thick, then distances become transport realities based on the concept of time. A trip from Delagoa Bay to the Pongola River and back would take a couple of weeks, far less time than a ship's journey from Europe to southern Africa. For Europeans, Delagoa Bay was a fever-ridden hellhole. They often preferred to live on the small islands offshore. These were safer from attacks and not as malaria-infested as the mainland. There were even attempts at establishing early factories on these islands, but these faltered. And yet, by the latter half of the 18th century, other islands further afield called the Mascarines became a major market for Indian traders, and the English began to trade from there by the 1760s. The Mascarine Islands are Mauritius, Réunion, and Rodriguez, east of Madagascar. The French also took advantage of these islands, and a brisk local trade emerged. A kind of triangle of its own took place between Mauritius, Cape Town, and Delagoa Bay, with Madagascar thrown in for good measure. Englishman Edward Chandler, for example, had 12 boats manned by Indian crew from Goa, who sailed up and down the Maputo River in 1868 and then sent the goods obtained to Europe 
around the Cape. Some ended up in the Mascarene Islands as well. The way trade worked was Europeans would make contact with middlemen who played the traders off against each other. They were canny negotiators and extremely well informed about the politics of the day back in Europe, and they would hoard the goods from the interior in their large warehouse-style huts and pits, push up the prices, and sometimes would harass traders in a form of intimidation to get the price they preferred. The Tsonga were famous as a source of metals, and in particular something called mdaka, rough lengths of copper and brass hammered into inkota, neck rings. These could also be fashioned into bangles and bracelets, all beavering away in inland forests, far from the prying eyes of the Europeans. The coppersmiths were paid in cattle, and by the time of Shaka, and perhaps earlier, the Tsongas would bring ivory to the Zulu in return for cattle, and the ivory would then be taken to the earliest European traders in Natal. These trade patterns had been set hundreds of years before Flynn and other explorers arrived in Natal in the first decades of the 19th century. By the time Dingaan had killed Shaka, Portuguese traders were living further away from Delagoa Bay. One such a man was called Denisa, who lived in Tsongaland, dealing in locally grown tobacco and ivory in exchange for Uchorda, which is a black cloth. He'd also trade his ivory and tobacco for Izimberu, heavy brass bangles, and Amasinda, the lighter arm bangles. From there, these goods would be moved inland by the middleman, who would exchange these metals for wildcat skins and sheep, goats, sleeping mats and shields. Englishman William Boltz took over the bay in 1777 on behalf of the Austrian-Asiatic company of Trieste, and ivory was the main trade item. That year, 69,000 pounds of ivory were loaded on board the ship called Success. In 1779, two ships took back around 40,000 pounds. The same amount was loaded on an Austrian ship the next year. Most of this trade was not recorded. We believe an estimated 100,000 pounds of ivory was being exported every year from Delagoa Bay or around 4,000 elephants were being slaughtered in this part of Africa to satisfy the locals' need for beads and metals and the Europeans' lust for the white gold. Needless to say, by 1810, as Shaka rose with Dingazwo, elephants were no longer to be found in most of the area from southern Mozambique and eastern Africa. Arabic traders from Zanzibar and further north had arrived here for hundreds of years, while Indian vessels also could be found the Parsis, as they were known at the time. There was even an Islamic preacher living at Delagoa Bay in 1800, along with other Muslims, and ship captains were told to bring coarse blue linen cloth, old clothes, brass rings, pieces of copper wire, glass beads, the larger the better, tobacco and pipes, knives, hats, wigs, shoes and stockings, if they wanted ivory and gold. Local people amalgamated to form more powerful trading groups, such as the Tembe, who ruled Delagoa Bay until the 1790s. But they only had control over the area up to around 180 kilometers inland, and trade was use value, with very little coinage around. By 1810, the sign of political clout was the accumulation of goods, with rich women wearing massive brass neck rings as a mark of their rank in society. Brass necklaces and beads were aesthetically beautiful, sparkling in the African sun, they were not trinkets, as has been described by some historians. These had built up an intrinsic value, culturally and artistically. Think of it like this. The Europeans valued ivory, which has no real financial value or use beyond cultural and artistic. 
This product was converted into piano keys or carved into inlays for instruments or wooden frames. But useless, really. They were consumable luxuries. And yes, folks, the same could be said for glass beads. Some in the ivory tower, excuse the pun, or the academic narrative, which has built up over many decades, particularly post-colonial, of Africans being hoodwinked in exchange for a few cheap goods like beads, with European merchants devious and cackling into their mugs, is somewhat modern revisionism. Both sets of trades had their own value embedded in their own culture. Look at ancient Mesopotamia or Carthage. These people coveted seashells, which were used in burial rites. So, by the first decade of the 19th century, items of value from inland Africa were being exported to Europe or other parts of the world, and some of these on the eastern seaboard were slaves. There's been a great deal of debate about the effect of slaving here and its connection to the development of the centralized states of southeastern Africa. One of the biggest problems for us is that there was very poor record-keeping about slaves in East Africa, unlike West Africa. Much of this trade was in secret, and the piracy was rampant. The pirates were big slave traders, and when they delivered their hapless cargoes to Brazil, they had merely registered these people as Mozambican, without saying from where they came. And Mozambique has a long coastline, 1,500 miles. The transatlantic slave trade from the west coast of Africa was booming at the time, but down the east coast, the high volume of this trade ended at Sofala, in the far north of Mozambique. Further south, it was more intermittent, so we believe this terrible system did not really have a direct bearing on the northern Zululand region. There are two major things to keep in mind about this matter. Firstly, that trade in people always comes with the trade in other goods, a complex relationship develops. In the north, in Safala, slaves from around Malawi and even as far as today's DRC would be seized and then forced to carry the ivory as well, a double win for the African slave traders who unsold their miserable cargo to Indian, Middle Eastern, Arabian and European buyers. This system disrupted local social and economic ways of life. The second thing to understand is that Africans sold their brothers and sisters for a profit to the Arabs, the Indians and the Europeans. Very few of these outsiders ever ventured far inland. They'd wait at the ports for the middlemen to arrive with the ivory and the slaves and then do the deal a few miles from their ships. Often the slaves were raided for other reasons locally in Africa. Wars between people, famines where people could not protect themselves. The defeated ended up on a ship from Safala heading to Saudi Arabia, Zanzibar, Goa in India, some to Brazil. The Brazilian link is interesting, but if you glance at a map, you'll see that Brazil is a very long way away from Safana, whereas Goa is just a relatively few hops along the coast from East Africa. By 1800, the violence associated with slavery had escalated, but not enough to destabilize the region around Delagoa Bay. There was just not enough going on to create resource collapses and disputes. However, the general trade and competition for ivory, gold and skins, copper, and the increase in population pressures caused by droughts did begin to have an effect. This represents a kind of pincer movement in northern Zululand, and it was going to tighten over the next 50 years as colonial pressures grew from the south, from Durban. And so now we return to the area between the Tugela and the Pongola rivers, and specifically around the Mfolozi, the Langeni and the Mplatuzi. Amongst the people who were tributary to the Amam Tetwa and about the Jobe and then Dingizwayo 
were Senzangakona's Amazulu. Things were on the move by 1800, and Senzangakona was set on building his own power base in the midwaters of the White Mfulosi to his north, the source of the Langeni to the south. Around Intlazachi, a remarkably broody mountain near Frehat in Zululand, there were settlements where the Amazulu, the Mabaso, the Kumalo, and the Butulezi peoples lived and could be found at this time. They occupied this mountain along a single line throughout the ridge, which meant they could see each other when attacked and join up to fight off a sudden assault. They were on high ground. Anyone driving from Melmoth to Freyhead today will see this large mountain, which was to play such a major role during the Zulu Wars of 1879. It is upon the fixed landscape that the various generations gyrate from pre-colonial to the present. So, Senzanga Kona, who was Shaka's father, was pretty much absent from his son's development, as you've heard. By now, he had established ties with the Mpungosi people, who claimed the mountains around Inklazache as their own. An Mpungosi man called Kube is a hero in Zulu oral tradition for having rescued Senzanga Kona's infant daughter and then murdered his brother Mkasana, cutting him down on the hills near Babanango. Kuba conzered before Senzanga Kona, who was still relatively weak, and then they both worked together to subdue the Tunu people nearby. But Matlingwani of the Tunu fought like a lion, and he was undefeated, and the two peoples took to burning down each other's huts through the next few years. The Tunu people, to this day, do not speak too highly of the Amazulu people, despite speaking the same language. But over this series, you're going to hear more evidence of the reasons why. The Mpungosi Zulu alliance rolled on. Next target was Kabashi of the Tolu, who lived further east, towards the coast around the Mfuli River. Kuba's son Nlovu led that series of attacks and was duly awarded land around Talaneni, just north of modern-day Nkantla, the home of Jacob Zuma. Nlovu was also awarded jurisdiction over the defeated Tolu. The Mpongosi and the Zulu were inseparable at this time. Kuba had an Amuzi close to Senzangakona's headquarters at Nobamba, while his son Silwana headed off to form his own family unit. Kuba's sister Nglita married a Zulu man. That cemented ties. One of Silwana's wives had lived in Senzangakona's Umizi at Nobamba as well, further strengthening this tight bond. Silwana was also a member of Senzangakona's Esiklebi Ubuto or regiment. Later, Silwana's son Gawazi became a man of high standing under Shaka and was alive at the time of Tretchwaya's reign in the 1870s. Surviving was quite a feat, considering what was going to happen here over the next 20 years, starting in 1810. There are other famous clans who survive into the modern era and form the core of Shaka's Amazulu, the Gazini, Matlakazi, the Mataka, Fazini and the Biela. So the marriages of convenience strengthened the Amazulu. It fused them. Senzangakona was a remarkable man if you consider the period with the Amam Tetwa and the Amam Dwandwe trying to destroy him. He was a clever operator and had a number of warrior regiments he could rely on in the mountains around Ubamba. The Isipesi, the Iwombi, the Isiklebi, Intonela, Mbelebele and the Mkangala. While these were largely age group and locally placed to Bhutto, the Iwombi were slightly different and were named after Anomizi and these men were uncircumcised. By now you are aware of how circumcision was being managed by the chiefs, increasing control over the men. Furthermore, Dingizwaya of the Amamtetwa had converted some of his regiments to non-circumcised warriors, and the Iwombi were copying his social military techniques, I guess you could call it. 
It was important for Sinzang Akuna to reinforce these links, so several of his sons ended up fighting in the Iwombe regiment, including Ntunja, the famous Tingan, and the other famous future Zulu leader, Mpande. That was a surprise because these three sons were of quite different ages, so they were wedged into the Iwombe for strategic political reasons. Even older men were part of the Iwombe, Senzanga Kona's uncle, for example, Mkundani, and even his wife Bibi's younger brother, Induvani. So, the Awombi were a hodgepodge, not a simple selection on age, as historian Dan Wiley notes. Senzanga Kona was an imizi or homestead builder of note, setting up more than any of his predecessors. And yet, the core Amazulu residences remained unchanged. Those at, at Isiklebeni and Intontela and Nobamba, with the latter being referred to later as the Jerusalem of the Zulus. He did not barrack his Amabutu into specialized settlements, military-style forts, I suppose, in the manner that Shaka would later. Since Zangakona was also more of a woman's man, his family grew quickly, and he had many, many sons and daughters, unlike Shaka. Since Zangakona of the Amazulu built marriage alliances, although some whispered that one in particular was verging on inbreeding, Zichunga Kamudli was the daughter of Mudli, who was a grandson of Jama, who was a cousin of Senzangakona. So his wedding to Zichungu sailed close to the incest wind in Amazulu social law. Another as more than a dozen main wives was Langazana, a Sabia woman. These people lived in the highlands west of the Amazulu, and later Shaka would subsume this clan completely. That was another close call genetically speaking, since Zangakona's own mother, Mtania, was a Sibia woman. It was Mkabi of the Emma Beleni who was his first and greatest wife, although, as you'll hear in a minute, not the best loved, and she was saved from succession disputes later because she bore no sons, only a daughter called Nozulwani. But she managed the girls of the Amazulu, including Shaka's mother, Nandi, which would have terrible repercussions later. Then there was Mpikasa the Emakungebe, who lived north of the Amazulu in the Amphalozi Valley. She was the mother of Dingan, the man who would one day assassinate Shaka. Another was Songia Kangocha of the Nklabisa, who lived in the Embabedlan hills across the Mphalozi River. Her son was Mpande, the future Amazulu king. Magulana Kanchongololo of the Emangani was also an important link to the Kwabe. And then other wives, whose origins are shrouded in Amazulu oral history mystery, like Nomorawu and Ngoto Kamui and Ngatka Kamlingi. But it was a woman described as regal and beautiful, Senzangakona's chief wife, Bibi, who held sway. She was a Bele from far west of the Imzanyati River, near Newcastle today. The Bele oral tradition is a mixed bag. They say they came from the grain basket, and they say they were descended from cannibals and they conzered the Amazulu when Jama or Ndaba were ruling early in the 18th century. Bibi bore Senzangakona a very important son called Sigujana, and soon Amazulu proverbs were peppered with references to this amazing woman. One says, You must be the possessor of some beautiful virtue like Bibi, whose star was in the ascendant, whatever king happened to come to power. She was lucky. And Senzangakona was quick to point out later that how is it that my wife, who is so beautiful and whom I love, should be called a Bele? Why should she be addressed as Mbele? It's difficult for the tongue to say Mbele to my wife. Does it mean that she is the Ibele, the front covering 
of an Imbila, a Dasi? For non-South Africans, a Dasi is a small mammal, a rock rabbit, that lives in hilly parts of the country, cute and furry, but hardly the stuff of queens. Senzanga Corner eventually had enough of the Mbele praise shot, where the call would be Mbele, and the people would shout back Intuli. So he issued an edict. From now on, the people's new name would be the Intuli. No more would his beautiful wife be called a rock rabbit. On he went, marrying off his daughters to firm up political alliances with neighbors. Nomankre, Intikile, Nomkaba, Mantanjwasi. They all ended up with high-ranking Amamtetwa men. Mantongela married into the Butelezi clan, Sikaka into the Mbata, and Ntimbazi into the Magazini. So, by the time of Shaka's teens, Senzangakona had sewn up a patchwork area from the White Mfulosi Valley east and north of his land to the headwaters of the Mfuli in the southeast, across the upper Mtlatuzi to the headwaters of the Nsuzi to the southwest, and even into the Mzinyati Valley further west. This is an area around 100 kilometers long and about 40 kilometers wide, and that remains the Amazulu heartland today. In episode 70, I'll relate how Shaka ran into trouble with Senzanga Kona and was cast out as an Injinga, a trouble causer. In a previous podcast, I've covered this in a circumspect way. Now you're going to hear the full story and his interest in Uwombi and how Senzanga Kona died. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the time. It helps make the series more visible. And if you have any comments or want to contact me, you can use the website desmondlatham.blog or desmondlatham.com. I'm also on Twitter. You can direct message me there at deslatham. Until next, salagatli.